this morning, I want to um, share with you a message entitled, Walking It's all right. It's all right. If this is the least of my the problems I have with props, I'll take it. Um, walking is not movement. When we think of walking, right? When we think of walking, usually it's equated with going from point A to point B. So today I want to talk to you about when walking is not that. Some of you are looking at me like, what? What is he talking, where is he going to go with this? So, when you Google best athletes, you all know that I'm a sports fan. I like sports. Okay? I, I, I like sports. And so this is considered to be the greatest 100 meter athlete of all time irony of it all he has the same amount of me medals as Carl Lewis you bet yeah some of your reactions are like huh really I did not know that you see we are often quick to forget the accomplishments of the predecessors but when somebody comes onto the stage and it begins to steal the show we're like oh yeah this one this one's the greatest right hmm. how about this one I will tell you right now, my personal opinion, no one will ever match Michael Jordan. Okay? <laughs> However, yes, the other one is highly accom accomplished and, and highly athletic. And, man, if I had his gifts, I'd probably consider myself also. I, he has dubbed himself. If you have watched sports, if you have watched uh, the documentary that he, he put on himself, he was sitting down on the couch and talking about the win that he brought to C Cleveland. He said, that win made me the greatest player of all time. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure. This one, some of you are familiar with. I am the greatest. I can hear the echoes of him yelling that out. I am the greatest. But notice how, what he also says. He says, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Some people won't make that claim. I am the, I am the greatest. Or they will consider, they'll put themselves in that, in, into that platform of being considered the greatest athlete or the greatest at what they do. And, and yes, I am a... A, a, a sports fan so naturally it's easy for me to talk about sports but we do this also in a religious setting we do pastor so-and-so oh, he's the best he has he, he has the best sermons or how about this pastors X his sermons just don't cut it for me Well, when, when Pastor X was here, we didn't have these issues. Or when I was a head elder or a head deacon, church functioned like clockwork. 
We never had these issues. I never had these problems. When I was, and we follow that with usually a description of how good it was when I did it. And the same goes not just in the religious world, it goes into the professional world as well. Right? When I did this, the company was awesome. Or we didn't have these issues. Or we're, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have the problems that we're facing now had I been doing X, Y, and Z. So we have automatically put ourselves into a position of assuming a position of greatness. Doesn't matter how high the, the, the totem pole you, you climb, but that attitude speaks to something that is already in us, a sinful nature that puts us in a place of danger. And so, the same happened with the disciples. Who is the greatest? They were, they were asking themselves who the greatest was. And in Mark chapter 9, verses, verse 34, this is talking about the disciples. But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Can you imagine that conversation? See, this takes place just before the Passover. They were discussing amongst themselves who the best disciple, who was Jesus' favorite. Are you Jesus' favorite? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? All I know is this. He died for me. I don't need to know if I'm his favorite or not. Okay? Looking back, hindsight 2020, he died for me. So yes, I'm on that list. As you are. As each and every one of you are. But the disciples were, they, they were looking at themselves and trying to figure out who the best disciple was who is the greatest, right? And then when they are ready, they walk into the upper room because Jesus had already asked them to go into, the, into town and prepare a place so they could come and celebrate the Passover together. Now, the Passover has to do with the people remembering where they were as, as slaves and leaving that place to become the children of God. So the Passover was actually celebrated standing up. If you go back and read it in Exodus, God tells his people, you're going to, you know, send yourselves with, with gird yourselves with, with your belt and have your staff in hand, and you're going to eat as if you're ready to march out. You're, you are doing this to, 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 to signify that you are ready to leave. And so they were about to celebrate the Passover. And the mood was grim because that just happened on the way over. The, the book Desire of Ages paints a really cool picture, a tragic picture, that the mood was so solemn. It's as if it was so thick you could cut it with a knife. They were all speechless. They weren't talking. 
And so Jesus comes into the scene and he says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little, called the little child to him, set him on the midst of them and said, surely I say to you, whoever humbles himself as this little child, as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, whoever receives one of, one of these little ones, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice if you, you need to become like children, or by no means you will enter the kingdom of heaven. A word there draws my attention. It's not become like little, little children, but it's the word humble. It's therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child. In Matthew chapter 18, it's the same story, but this is written in a different way. It gives us a little bit of better perspective as to what Jesus is, in try, is trying to, uh, uh, to teach. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one of these little ones like this in my name receives me. Have, is it hard to say no to a child? <laughs> a child is like, nope. Because he's probably gotten been told no by his parents, right? So as parents, we have that responsibility. But if a child comes up to you and says, I, I need your help, the first reaction that we'll have most likely is a positive one in favor of that child. That's who we are. And Jesus is telling us that we need to be like a child. We need to humble ourselves. And as I said, the word humble is, is one that pulls me into this verse. And I did a little, little words, word search. The humble in the Old Testament, according to the New King James Version, appears 57 times, 10 times in the Hebrew Bible. No, we're not doing a sermon series on the word humble and its different words. However, it's important for us to understand that the context of these words are important. These words teach us something. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name and what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. How often have we applied this to our church? We need to humble ourselves. We need to come together and pray. And by, by the way, we are going, I'm giving you a little heads up. In October, we're, I'm going to call on people to pray. Not here in the front. But we need to come together in prayer for a specific thing. So be ready. To start praying. To start praying. But we need to pray and turn from their wicked ways. See, I don't see how you can do all those things and not be humble. So humble has to preface all of these actions. Because you can pray, you can turn from your wicked way, but if your attitude is not one of humility, you are no more better than a Pharisee. But there's another text. You see, 
The word humble here in, the, in its Hebrew also implies not just humility, but to be subdued. Do you guys know what subdue means? Or to, to subdue or to be subdued means? Let me show you. All of these texts, if you want to do a quick study in your own, go ahead, take a quick, quick snapshot picture of this screen. These are all the words in which the same word that is used for humble is used for subdue. Okay, I see some phones, I'll wait. That's okay. But this is interesting because when you, when you compare the two to be humble or to, be, to have humility... Sometimes we don't put it in the same level as subdue or to be subdued. There's another word that we could use to, that would correlate that, which would be submission. Okay? Same meaning. And this is where I would like to point out to you. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. To be subdued also implies that there's somebody above you. Somebody is greater than you. In this instance, the Israelites had subdued the Philistines. They became greater than. Here's another one. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 19. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they may become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also heard, have heard you, says the Lord. Here in this version it says humble, but it's the same word as subdue. In the New Testament, we see a similar concept with Paul. Paul actually calls himself a slave, a bondservant. A bondservant is somebody who subdues or is subdued by another individual. As a slave, you have a master. Your master has, submit, has, has subdued you, has put, placed himself over you. As a slave, it means that you answered to somebody. And Paul, in every one of these letters, he talks about him being a bondservant, a slave to whom? To Christ. And so when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, he comes up with a text that says, No one can serve two masters, for either the he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon together. I can't help but to think the mood in that upper room. The disciples are coming together, and they're not speaking a word. Jesus notices all of this. And he's looking. And no one's getting up. Now you look at, if you think about the context of all of this, 
the creator of the universe is in the same room with you. The one who he's been ministering to and with you for the last three years, he's been teaching you that he's come to save the world. And yet the ones who he was teaching was ar- were arguing who is the best. Yet no one was able and no one was willing to serve his brother. So Jesus rolled up his sleeves. Noticing that there was no slave, there was no servant, he became the slave. And he took that jug of water and he began to pour. The Bible tells us that he girded himself with a towel, took the basin, and he said, here, let me serve you. The imagery. The Bible tells us that at that moment, even the spirit of prophecy in in the book of Desire of Ages, it describes the mood as being extremely solemn. The, the creator of the universe had to stoop so low to wash the dust off the disciples' feet when it should have been the disciples who were said, Lord, please, let me wash your feet. Last night, we had a really cool moment at home. And for those of you that may be asking, are we not washing each other's feet? We had mentioned before, that this was to be done at home. And so when we sat there and as I was watching, washing, excuse me, washing my kids' feet and my wife's feet, we were able to have that conversation of what this actually means. Who are you serving this morning? Are you able to say that you are like Paul, that you've subdued yourself, you have allowed yourself to become a slave to Christ? Because by becoming a slave to Christ, Paul is also implying that he is willing to serve at his beck and call. If Jesus says jump, you say how high? If he says go, I'm going. It's not a question of well, what's going to happen? Well, he's asked you to go, so go. He's asked you to participate, so do it. He's asked you to volunteer, no questions asked, I'm going. Though you may be reluctant, though you may see that, I don't see how this is going to work out, but how many times have I heard stories of people come to me and say, Pastor, I know God is calling me to do this, I just don't see a way through it. I said, I don't see your problem because the one who called you is going to enable you. The one who subdued himself at that very moment so he could teach a lesson that we are no greater than the person sitting down next to you. I love the story in Matthew 
Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all reflect the same, the same idea. The same idea of submission and, 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 and becoming a slave. Because Jesus says this. After he has served them, he says, I will no longer partake of the fruit until it is fulfilled in the kingdom again. Now think about that for a minute. It means that he, Jesus, though having been resurrected and, being, and having ascended into heaven, has access to all the food. I mean, he can create a fruit or a vegetable out of thin air to whatever taste he... I want something that looks like a mango to taste like chocolate. There it goes. He can do that. But he, but he says, I'm not going to partake of this fruit. Luke talks about, I will not drink of the vine until you are with me in the kingdom again. So here's, here's something for you to keep in mind. Let's pretend that this rope represents eternity. It goes off into eternity over there. And this is your life. Would it not be worth it to subdue your life to Christ? No matter how long you live, no matter how short you live, but your life, and compared to eternity, why not serve Christ? Why not submit yourself? Why not acknowledge the fact that you have somebody who's willing to open and openly embrace you and wants to lead you and guide you so that your life, as small as it may be, will have eternity with the king. I want to invite Sharon at this moment to come forward. Because part of what we do, the reason why we do communion, is to celebrate not just the forgiveness of sins, but also to highlight the implications of it. You see, one of the other reasons why we look at this and we celebrate communion is it gives us a fresh start. It's like a rebaptism, per se. It's like you're saying, Lord, I'm going to submit myself to you so I can start fresh. I'm reading from Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. Father in heaven, we've come here to celebrate what you've done for us. At this moment, we're looking at the bread. You allowed your body to be broken for me, so mine doesn't have to be. And my heart goes out to you in gratitude. Mm. I pray that now as I partake of that emblem you've offered, that you will cleanse my heart and that I can be the humble servant 
that you have promised you will make of me. In Jesus' name, amen. With the bread facing out, may open. And Jesus said, this is my body. Eat. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 26, 27. He then took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. Lord, thank you that we can be gathered here today in remembrance of the blood that you shed for us. As we take the wine today and drink it, please cleanse our souls and everyone. You shed your blood so that we may sa be saved, not just for today, but for eternity. Help us to humble ourselves so that you can be greater in our lives. Help us be smaller so that you can cover everything. Bless us and thank you for your sacrifice. And he says, drink all of you. This is my blood, a new covenant I have established with you, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The Bible says that After they had finished celebrating supper, they went out and they sung a hymn. But we have learned that hymns can be in the form of many facets. So today we're going to continue the, that tradition of singing the blessing. But after the blessing, we're going to sing that song again. God, you're so good. And I pray that God blesses you as you surrender yourself to him, that you become that servant that he can call my child, my son, my daughter. May God bless you, and may he continue to grow you.